Well, I remember, for me, the first person I knew who had professed faith in Christ and walked with Jesus for some time, who turned away. He was a family member uh, who had served as a pastor for decades, first abandoning his ministry and then his Savior, the confession of Christ that he had once made known. I remember seeing this pattern repeated, um, particularly through Bible college. Um, Going to Bible college, you think you're going to be with a bunch of people who are zealous for the Lord, and to be sure, that is one of the realities of that experience. But my experience in subsequent decades has been to go back over my graduating class and observe one after another has walked away and is no longer walking with the Lord. In recent years, we've seen it strike home in other family members, in church members. What about, what about you? Where have you seen this? In recent days, we've seen it in uh, headlines, at least Christian, evangelical headlines, as famous, famous Christians deconstruct their faith, they wander away, they apostatize, they fall away from grace, and they always do it on Instagram. One more reason to stay off Instagram. What is it, what is it that bothers you more? The ones, the big celebrities who everybody idolizes, or the ones who are close to home? They both weigh on us, right? They weigh on us Maybe differently depending on how you receive it, but I think the reason why it weighs on us so much, why it consumes us, why it's like a pebble in our shoe, why it bothers us is because there's some kind of unbelief that remains in us, some kind of question, some kind of doubt that what if they saw something that I'm just not seeing or or more, what if what I believe is right, but what happened to them can also happen to me and so it introduces an element of fear into my walk. We could have, I believe, profitable discussion this morning in the theological abstract about what to do about people who apostatize. What are we supposed to think? What's our theology of those who wander away? But Jesus has another purpose for us in this text as he thinks about those who wander. What he wants to lay out for us is his plan for his church, for his community to be the type of place where people do not wander away. How will that be? This passage is Jesus' game plan for keeping his people. And it starts, it starts by Jesus teaching us the heart of the Father. See, this whole passage is about going after those who wander, about not leaving any little one, any sheep on their own, but bringing them back into community. It's about going after wanderers, but the going after wanderers starts, first of all, by recognizing that it's the heart of the Father that must be played out in the obedience of the children. And so we've got simply... Two headings this morning. They both start with going after wanderers. This is the will of the Father. Jesus makes clear in verse 14 that none would be lost. He starts, as we said, with the heart of the Father in verses 10 to 14. 
You want to see the Father's heart, first of all, in the angels. In this strange verse about angels in verse 10, I love this. Look at what Jesus says. See that you do not despise these little ones, despising the little ones. Remember, the little ones here are not children. They are the ones who have become like children in their acceptance of Christ, in their abandoning of their hopes for position in the eyes of other people, praise in the eyes of people, and they have accepted their spiritual bankruptcy and they've come to Christ for mercy. They have humbled themselves. So these little ones are Christians who are not to be despised. That means hindered. That means opposed. That means you are withholding good from those who need it, as we saw last Last week, Jesus says, do not despise these little ones. Why? Because I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. These angels, this angelic host, this army in heaven stands ready for their marching orders from Jesus Father. These angels, remember who these angels are, because there's a lot of weird, weird folk Christian thought about what angels are. When angels show up in scripture, people fall down as if dead. They fall down trembling. These are terrifying armies of the living God. There, there are three thoughts about angels in particular that I think are relevant for us here. The first one is this, angels do the will of God. Angels are not autonomous creatures out there doing their own thing. The angels who are in the presence of God are his servants, his ministers. So Psalm 103 verse 20 says this, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones, so they're mighty, the warriors, the, the heavenly host, the mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. They are mighty, but they obey the commands of their Lord. The second thing we see about angels is this. They protect the saints who trust in God. They protect the saints who trust in God. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you, you saints who trust in God, you holy ones, to guard you in all your ways. So, so what's happening here when Jesus says they're angels, he, he's not referring to some personal guardian angel that each one of us just has an angel assigned to us. He's simply saying the heavenly host who are assigned as one of their duties as they obey the will of God is to protect the little ones, the, the sheep, the flock of God. They are there for the protection of the saints. The third thing we see about angels is this, they bring God's wrath. They bring God's wrath or his anger on his enemies, particularly those who oppose his people. So Psalm 78 and verse 49, he let loose on them, the enemies of his people, those who despise his people, he let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. So what's the picture that Jesus is laying out for us here? Sometimes we can picture this wrong. Sometimes we picture this like, I've got my guardian angel who's in heaven, and he's compassionate for me because he knows I'm an idiot because he hangs out with me all the time. And so he's pleading with God, God the unmoved and unmoving father on the throne, waiting to be interceded with as if somehow the angel is pleading with God to do something God doesn't want to do. That is patently untrue. The reality is the angels are assembled before the throne of God. They're in his presence. They see his face. The ones who see the face of the king are waiting for orders. They're marching orders from the king. And what are the marching orders these angels will get? It will be to protect the saints and to oppose their enemies, to bring destruction on their foes. 
And all of this will be not because God is persuaded to do something he didn't want to do, but because it will be the expression of his will to command his heavenly host to protect his children. So when Jesus says, don't despise these little ones, he's like, don't pick on the kid in the class who has older brothers. There are those who will come to the defense of this one who are stronger than you. You don't want to be on the wrong side of these battle lines. The angels will be loose to protect his children if his heart is inclined. But that begs the question, is the father's heart actually inclined? So Jesus asks, what do you think? And he shows us now the heart of the father in the shepherd. Here we see the father's heart in the shepherd. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? A man who would have 99 sheep or a hundred sheep is not going to be on the mountains by himself. So when it says he leaves the 99, what he means is he leaves the 99 in the care of the ones he's hired, but he himself as the owner goes after the one who is missing. Because that's an expression of his heart. He won't entrust this work to anyone else. Verse 13, we read this. If he finds it, if he finds that wandering one, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. This is a description of his heart. This isn't just telling you what happened in a story. It's telling you how the father feels. What rejoices the heart of the father? He rejoices over the wandering one recovered more than the 99 that never went astray. So the, the picture is kind of like if I'm watching TV with my kids um, and I decide I want ice cream and I tell my kids, go get me some ice cream. And they say, no. And I'm like, okay. And then I just give up. Like, I didn't really want it that much. Like, I don't want it enough that I'm going to get myself up off the couch. I was just kind of hoping someone else would go do it for me. You know, that kind of want. That's not what's happening here with the Father. The desire that the Father has for the wandering ones is a desire that's so strong that says, I'm going to get up off the couch. I'm not going to entrust this to my children because they won't give me enough ice cream, whatever it is. I'm going to go and I'm going to get it for myself. And this starts, obviously, with the gospel. We understand that God, being the furthest thing from unmoved by our sin or unaffected by our sin, is troubled deeply in the core of his being because those he loves have been separated from him by our sin, by our rebellion. And so what God does is he gets up off the couch. He has angels, but angels can't do this work. He won't entrust it to them, but rather the second person of the Godhead, of the triune God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, takes on flesh and comes to our earth. He lives our life. He lives in our place, fulfilling all the demands of the law for us, suffering and dying in our place, paying the price that we could not pay, all to bring us to the Father. If you have at any point believed the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, that Christ was raised on the third day for you, that Christ has ascended to the heavens and one day he will return to gather you and to bring you to the Father, you have already seen this heart. He comes for you. You, 
So Jesus says, if this is the heart of the Father in the gospel, it's the heart of the Father still to keep going after, to keep bringing back those who would wander. I want you to see that this is the Father's heart, yeah, in the shepherd, and yeah, in the angels, but specifically, this is the Father's heart now for you. This is not an abstract theological reality that's just out there somewhere. This is something that is particularly true for you. Look at verse 14. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Do you understand that the will of God, the will of your Father that was at work in the sending of Christ to come and to seek and to save the lost, is the heart of the Father towards you even still now. If you are one of his little ones, if you have put your trust in Christ, this is still his heart towards you. That you having begun with him, having become part of his flock, would not wander off and perish. So there's, there's a difference. This, this parable of the lost sheep is told in a little bit of a different way in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we're a little more familiar with that one because it's put together, three parables are put together. There's the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And Luke speaks about those things which are lost. Matthew rather speaks about this and uses different language in his telling of the parable to talk about those who are wandering so R.T. France describes the difference in this way. He says, Luke's parable is evangelistic. Matthew's is pastoral. It's concerned with getting those who already are sheep, who are wandering and bringing them back before they die. Those who have been part of the community, who have isolated themselves and are wandering in their sin. Have you not seen this? How long have you been a Christian? The longer we walk with Christ, the more seasons of hard-heartedness, of rebellion, of pride, of giving in to old patterns of sin, old ways of thinking, old ways of relating, Sometimes, even in our pride and in our rebellion, we're like terrible sheep who wait till we think the shepherd is asleep and then try to run away in the middle of the night. But hasn't this been your experience that time and again, no matter how hard-hearted and no matter how bent you are on your own sin and destruction, the shepherd keeps coming and getting you and bringing you back? I believe that some of us in this season where we are separated, isolated, and by necessity, it feels like we are wandering from the flock, are in this type of a season right now. And I want you to hear from Jesus, the heart of the Father, who is seeking you and calling you now, in this moment, through this text, to come back. He is 
calling you. He is chasing you. He is pursuing you. He had us working through this gospel and coming to this passage and stumbling on this verse this day so that you would hear the voice of your father saying, I love you. I sent my son to come and get you and I'm coming after you again. So turn and come back. Humble yourself again like a child. Confess your sin and come after Christ in repentance. But there are some of us who are even more far gone. Some of us who have wandered so far that we're not even watching this or listening to this or engaging with what God is teaching us as a church right now in Matthew's gospel. How will those ones be brought back if they're not hearing this word right now? How will God seek those who are wandering in Grace Fellowship Church and bring them back? He sent Christ in the gospel. He has angels at his disposal here in Jesus' teaching. But what we see as the earthly means by which God typically brings back, by which he usually brings back his plan for bringing back his sheep, his children, his little ones, his wandering ones, is other Christians. It's you. Taking the heart of the Father and putting it into action as obedient children Here's our second heading this morning, and it's this. We are the ones who go after wanderers. We've heard about the heart of the Father. Now I want to talk about the obedience of the children. This obedience that Christ is calling us to here is the obedience, first of all, of family love. The obedience of family love. Look at the language of verse 15. If your brother sins against you, don't, don't read that too quickly. Don't skim over that word. The word brother is generic, so it's not, it's not gender specific in the sense that this is only about guys. This is if your brother or your sister, the important thing you pick up on is that it's family. If your brother or sister sins, and, and, and the word's against you, it's, it's debatable, it's, it's really tricky in the critical editions of the text to understand the original, uh, what we have of the original language of the text, whether the words against you are actually included in the original. What I want to say is simply this. The heart of the Father should not be hung up on a technicality, like, I don't know if the sin was against me or not. What Jesus is going after is the heart of a Father who sees someone wandering in danger of sin and goes after them, whether the sin was against you or not. It's broad enough to encompass both. This is a family love. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. Don't hide it. Don't keep it. Go after it between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See that language? You've gained your brother. You've gained your sister. This language is so crucial. As Jesus is talking about what a, what a kingdom community is going to look like, what his kingdom community is going to look like, he brings up this language of brother and sister here. And then look at verse 21. Peter picks up on it and says, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother if he sins against me? And then in verse 35, as Jesus rounds out that parable, he says, so will your heavenly father do to every one of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. This is not simply terminology that we use when we forget each other's names. This is significant covenantal love language. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 15, the apostle Paul uses this language again. Do not regard him when you're warning him, when you're going after a brother or sister 
in their sin. Don't regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. Warn them as a sister, as a family member. Isn't this the type of love you would expect from family? To come get you when you're in your absolute worst state? Some of us have experienced that. Some of us have deep wounds because our family wasn't there for us when we were going through our darkest moments. But even those wounds testify to the reality of the expectation that we know family should be there. And what Christ is doing as he builds this new kingdom community of his people is he's saying, here is a redeemed family who cares for you and comes after you even in your sin. This is a covenantal family obligation. So parents, you can imagine a situation where one of your children at school is maybe suffering the abuse or the harassment of bullies, of kids who are picking on your child. Or maybe your child is is falling in with the wrong crowd and the wrong type of influence. And you have other children at that school who see that happening. And you find out that your other children have not interceded. They have not helped the child who was suffering or going astray. How do you feel? Conversely, how do you feel if the brotherly love, the sisterly love of the other child intercedes, interjects, is willing to go after and suffer or do whatever is necessary to help and to come alongside the child who is suffering? This is the heart of the father that he longs for the children to go after and to keep one another. And it's important as we do this, as we talk about going after one another in our sin, the sin that leads to wandering, the sin that leads to wandering that would lead to death if we're not brought back. It's important that we remember where Jesus started that you humble yourself like a little child, that you remember that you are nothing and you got in by mercy alone. So the presumption, the default is as you go after a brother or sister, you go after them, not out of judginess, not out of competition, not out of keeping face, not out of a desire to look like the right thing or to be the right thing, but a desire simply to help someone who right now is going where you may go tomorrow. Recognizing that we all stand in need of a brother or sister to call us back. This is the obedience of family love. There is only one father. The rest of us are just little ones. This is the obedience, secondly, of persistent pursuit. It's a persistent pursuit. So Jesus said in verse 15, you go after them, you seek them alone, one-on-one. If that doesn't work, you do not give up. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the Old Testament precedent of bringing a charge that a charge would be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses then to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, someone who is now outside of the community, no longer a member of the community, no longer a sheep belonging to this flock. So Jesus says you are to love one another with a family love and a persistent love. A persistent love, as we said, that starts by going to the brother, going to the sister alone. This is an essential first step. 
If you desire more to win the sister than you do to win the argument, then you do it privately. Because you know what you're doing? Yes, you're protecting their honor and their dignity publicly, but you're also making it easier for them to own their sin and to repent. You know how much easier it is to confess that you're wrong when it's one-on-one? You're just removing all the barriers that you can to this person's repentance. You're caring for them, so you address it privately. If they don't listen to you, this persistent pursuit presses on. Take one or two others who will be witnesses. Now, they're not witnesses to the sin, so it's not like they were there when the thing happened. They're witnesses to the confrontation, to hear the case, to weigh the arguments. Person one versus person two. This is my case, this is my case, and to weigh in and to strengthen your appeal. So I'm going after my brother or my sister and they're not listening to me and I bring one or two along with me and say, listen, I don't know. I don't think I'm crazy. I think I'm right. You guys hear me and tell me if I'm right or wrong. And they listen and they say, no, he's right. You need to listen to this brother or sister who's coming after you. The one or two come alongside to strengthen the appeal. What if they still don't listen? Guys, this is hard, right? Like it's hard enough to bring it up once. It's awkward it's weird. They don't listen. Now you involve other people. You're, you're, you're heightening. The stakes are increasing, right? You're heightening the risk. They don't listen with one or two others. Now, now what do you do? Your obligation to that brother or sister is not complete. You have not lived out the heart of the Father to leave the 99 and go after the one that's wandering if you do not actually pursue them all the way in this persistent pursuit. And there's one more recourse, which is you tell it to the church. Now again, the church, as we saw in Matthew 16, is not a technical word yet at this point in history. The, the, the church is a word that was broadly used in culture to describe an assembly, a gathering, a group of people who were identified by a common cause. It could be political. It could be religious. Here in particular, what Jesus is doing is he's building a church, a gathering, a community who are defined by their association with him. So simply put, he's saying, get other Christians, other disciples, other followers of me, And that this community, their role is to come alongside you to hear your case and to strengthen your appeal to this brother or sister to come back from their wandering. What if they still don't listen to the church? The end of verse 17, the you here is still singular. This is really important to realize. See what Jesus says at the end of verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Oftentimes people will take that as a reference to the church, that the church is to put someone out and there to be a tax collector or a Gentile to the church community. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's using the singular form of you in the verbs and in the the pronoun here to simply say this. He's saying your obligation as an individual to this other individual that you are pursuing as a representation of the Father's heart is not complete until you've chased it all the way down. You've brought in others to strengthen your appeal. You've brought in the church to strengthen your appeal. And now you have no more recourse. Your only response is to let this person be to you as a tax collector or Gentile. You have fulfilled your obligations to this wanderer. This is the role of an individual. Not here pastors not hear the vote of a congregation, 
In fact, the mention of the assembly is almost incidental to the process, right? They're just other voices, their testimony. They're, they're coming alongside and strengthening the appeal of the individuals. The one who, to, who is to treat the wanderer as a tax collector or a Gentile is you, the pursuer, representing the heart of the Father. Now, we, we, need, we need to be absolutely clear here. This is not a text that is to function as a manual for church discipline. Don Carson, in commenting on this passage, he's comparing it with what we have in um, places like the Qumran Scrolls, which is a technical thing. Basically, other Jewish communities in and around Jesus' day that were defined communities had manuals for discipline. This was common in a community that was already identified. This is different. Carson writes this. He says, There is very little in Matthew 18 that has the flavor of regulation and much that deals with principle. Principles. Jesus is addressing a church that does not yet exist. The, the formation of what all of this is going to look like as the church grows and is strengthened and develops a structure will become clearer as the New Testament develops. But simply here, he is dealing with principles. Is the individual disciple that forms the community representing the heart of the Father? Here's R.T. France. This is a longer quote than I, I typically read, but I find it helpful for clarity, so I want to read it for you. R.T. France, commenting on this passage, says this, This is how a disciple is to act when he or she is aware that a fellow disciple is in spiritual danger through sin. This is then a description of the practical outworking of the pastoral concern for the little ones. It is addressed entirely to the individual disciple so that the verse, verse 17 here, prescribes not communal ostracism, but the attitude of the individual disciple who first noticed the problem. The disciple is envisaged, they're, they're pictured as acting within the context of the whole community. So the disciple is not isolated from community, they're in community and they use community, but the focus is on the individual's attitude and action. So far, this text is all about your obedience as an individual disciple, though a member of a community, to go after and pursue another individual disciple. This doesn't mean that the community does not act decisively. It does not mean that the community does not render judgment. They must do that to strengthen your appeal. Which means that if we're going all this way in this kind of family love, I love you and so I'm doing this, but this persistent pursuit, I'm leaning in on this and I'm not pulling up, I'm not laying off, I'm not backing off of this, I'm pressing into this. We need to have some level of confidence that we're actually right and that this is somehow going to work, which is why Jesus gives us these last three verses in our text which give us confidence. There is, friends, there is confidence that comes in this obedience to Christ. There's confidence that comes in this obedience to Christ. He's going to describe it for us. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, now the you here becomes plural. Jesus is, is scaling back and now he's going to speak to the judgment that is, or, or, or he's speaking rather to the broader community as they evaluate these situations. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The, the binding and the loosing, again, as we saw in chapter 16, is language that was common among the rabbis of Jesus' day as they ruled on a matter. Is a thing lawful or unlawful? The 
will bind or they will loose on a matter. It's not whomever you have loosed or bound, but whatever. It's the matter that judgment is being rendered on, not the individual person. So the scenario then again is this. Person one has a case against person two. Person two doesn't believe it. So some other Witnesses are brought in to bring testimony to say, person one is right, you need to repent. The person two still doesn't repent, so you take it to the church. The church somehow renders a verdict. Yes, person one is correct. Person two, you need to listen. You need to come back. You need to turn back. You need to repent. So now it is speaking to the broader church community, but it still does not necessitate that the whole church hears the matter or votes. That's going beyond what the text says. Think about how the Apostle Paul works this out for the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he writes this, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3, where there are quarrels and there's cakes being made against another brother, between brothers in the church. They're fighting these matters out and they're taking it to the court of law outside of the church. And Paul says, that's a shame. He says in 1 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3, don't you know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So the Apostle Paul has a category for people in the church being appointed on behalf of the church to render judgment between members of the church. It may be that a local church as a whole church would hear the case and render judgment. It may also be that specific delegated appointed members, whether elders or otherwise specially equipped to hear a case, would be able to hear and render judgment and speak on behalf of the church. Much the way that a, an elected official would be able to speak and to render judgment. A judge would be able to speak and render judgment on behalf of the people whom he represents. Again, here, the whole of the community, by virtue of the ones who've spoken, have borne testimony and person two in our scenario still has not repented, what becomes of the one who does not listen with regards to the community? Well, it makes sense that the community, having rendered judgment that person two is in sin, and they've agreed with person one that this person needs to repent but is not repenting, it may well be that they would decide to put that person officially out of that community but that's going beyond what is simply written in this text. You need to read between the lines to get there. It is a good and logical conclusion, but it's not what the text mandates. See, the details about what church discipline is going to look like, if it is engaged, are not included here because the primary concern that Jesus has in this passage is the heart of the individual to go after and get the ones who are wandering. Now, as we said, all of this requires some degree of confidence, some degree of boldness, right? Does this actually leave us with any hope? 
What Jesus says in verse 18 is heaven is going to agree with the verdict that has been rendered on earth. So so those who have been authorized and delegated by the church or the whole church community, as they've heard this and they've rendered judgment, heaven will ultimately agree with what you have declared on earth. How can we have confidence? How can we have that kind of boldness to act in that kind of faith? Well, because of verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You've heard the case. You've weighed the matter. You've sought the will of the Father. You've gone after the wanderer and you have asked. You've agreed about it and you've asked the Father in my name. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name to to seek, to go after, to pray for the wanderer, there I am among you. You know what startled me as I studied this passage to preach it? This text is far clearer about the urgency and necessity of prayer than it is about any methods of church discipline. And and sometimes we gloss this over like the real business happens in verses 15 to 18 and now 19 and 20 are incidental. Guys, this is fundamental to everything. The only confidence, the only hope we have that any of this actually works and that the wanderer will actually be brought back is simply this, that we pray. That you ask the Father whose heart is already inclined towards the wanderer. In the name of Christ, who died to purchase these little ones and is speaking to protect them, that the obedience of the children would be met by the willingness of the heart of the Father, that the Spirit of Christ would effectively work in the heart of the wanderer and bring them back. If we want to be a community where we see wanderers restored, we must, more than methods, focus on, lean on, depend on the mercies of God in prayer as a community for those who are wandering. Now notice, this still falls short of promising in each and every case the results that we in particular want in a timeline that we want them but it does give us confidence and it does give us boldness to act. See, here's the beautiful picture we're left with at the end of all of this, that the children have become like the father. The heart of the father is worked out in the obedience of the children. The heart of the father that gets up off the couch and goes after the wanderers has become the actions of the children, the brothers and sisters who love each other enough with a family love, with a covenant love, with a persistent pursuit to go after and get them. And when we can't get them, to commit them to the care and the pursuit of God. Here is a place, this community, where wanderers can be restored. Now, I want to leave you with this in particular because the emphasis of this text, the burden of this text, lies on individual disciples who make up this community. We are in a season right now where it is more impossible than ever for one pastor, two pastors, or even four pastors to know the spiritual well-being of all of the members and all of the attenders of Grace Fellowship Church. 
if we are ever in need of being this kind of community where we go after one another, individual to individual, to bring back the wanderer, it must be now. Who among us is wandering right now? See, here's the reality. You know the answer to that question with regards to specific individuals. And other people in other houses around the city watching this know the answer to that question with regards to other individuals. Those people whom the Lord puts on your heart are now your obligation. Will the heart of the Father be manifest in your obedience as a child? Will you go get them with a love that is a family love, a humble love with persistent pursuit that longs for their restoration? How many of us will be lost? Added to the list of those who wandered away to our own destruction. The will of the Father is that none of us would be lost. The question that remains is how closely will the obedience of the children reflect the heart of the Father? Let's pray.